Hey everyone, welcome to a new episode of Allow Me to Introduce. My guest today is Benny Horowitz, the drummer of the Gaslight Anthem, a rock band from New Jersey. We talk about the reunion of the Gaslight Anthem after a four-year hiatus and how that came about. We also talk about the mental health challenges that performers often face on the road and also when they come back home. And we also get some insight in what we can expect from the new upcoming record from the Gaslight Anthem. So with that, allow me to introduce Benny Horowitz. I wanted to get started. I guess the most obvious spot is the Gaslight Anthem has been reunited for the first time since the uh, 10-year anniversary tour of the 59 Sound. Um, you had mentioned on on previous shows and podcasts and outlets how the band came back together. Brian kind of came to you and you had said if you can write four or five songs, um, you know, then 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 you'll jump back into it. Turns out, I guess that did happen. You guys just got done with a worldwide tour, Europe and the U.S. I, I guess the first question is, how long did it take to get back into a rhythm with those guys and, and the band? Did it take some time or did, did it just kind of feel natural getting right back into it? Um, well, just for the sake of clarity, the four or five songs thing was was kind of a challenge Brian gave to himself. Um, that was, okay. yeah, that was more of a like, I can't even conceive this idea unless I can conceive the idea of me writing Gaslight Anthem songs. And he had a bit of a personal challenge before he even came to me. My real caveat always is, um, you know, the I, I just um, wholeheartedly believe in the, the thing that we built and how like awesome it was and how awesome it should remain. And if you can't give that thing your your full energy and heart and love, then you probably shouldn't do that thing anymore, you know? And I was willing to do, you know, various things with my life to make sure that, you know, Gaslight wasn't um, tarnished in that way. Um, I'd rather, I guess we sort of made the decision. This wasn't just me, but, you know, we, we really sort of made the decision, like, if we have nothing left to say, I'd rather be the replacements, you know? I'd rather be a shirt in a journey's, where people go through this amazing catalog of work rather than watching some old people who aren't really connected play songs they wrote 25 years ago. And there's no harm in that. Like I see bands doing that all the time. As long as people are getting along and having fun and enjoying your music and the fans are enjoying the music, like I really don't have like some kind of black mark on that, uh, way to move your career but it's certainly something i really didn't think was right for gaslight um so when i spoke to brian i mean immediately you know he sounded different and he sounded 100 percent invested in the idea and then the idea that this is like you know we're not just playing some shows we're doing the thing and we're writing music and we're getting creative and getting into the thing and that's you know that's what makes it all worth it. And so so that was kind of my caveat there. Um, to answer the second part of the question, uh, you know, I feel like it, it, it's funny you ask that because I did notice it the first time we actually got in a room together again. And, you know, we're playing a couple songs and, um, you know, I'm looking around the room and I'm like, this feels really familiar. You know, this feels like not a lot of time has passed for whatever reason. And then 
you start to peel it back and realize you've spent more time sitting in a room staring at these people than you probably have almost anyone else in the world, including your own family and shit at a certain point. So of course it feels familiar. Um, you know, and then, yeah, I think, you know, musically, you know, like, I think fortunately nobody had like abandoned music. Everybody had been playing a lot and uh, really being active. So after we kicked the dust off and started really just learning the songs and, you know, feeling the way they should again, even some stuff off Get Her, we never even really learned to play live yet. Um, and that was still a new new endeavor. And then once that that went, you know, I started looking around and I'm like, oh, shit, like these guys got better, you know, in this time. Like it's been a long time and they've all been writing and working and staying in bands and writing albums and everyone got more depth and more, you know, uh, more, more, I guess, like seasoning on their cast iron pan, you know, like, um, so, so that was a cool, like it, that really came to notice more when we started playing shows, but yeah, it was a cool thing and it didn't feel like super awkward really like at all. D does that raise your own level when you see, all the other guys, like you said, kind of a little more seasoned. Does that kind of make you try and step up your game a bit more as well to try to try and keep up? Of course, yeah. I mean, like it's never lost on me. I'm I'm luckily um, an inherently paranoid um, and unimpressed person, I guess. Um, so I'm always like looking around being like, yo, there's somebody who's like 25 years old, who's in great shape, nipping at my heels out there somewhere. Like I got to, and especially these days with the fact that like uh, robots can do things that are, that are pretty magnificent on drums these days, you know? So it's never lost on me that I got to keep working. And, but I think I'll just put myself in the same conversation because I've recorded a lot of records and done a lot of work in the time we've been gone. And even though I'm older and I can't hit as hard as I used to, I definitely have like a lot more tricks than I do in my bag. Um, but no, a hundred percent. I think that same way in like, you know, a team dynamic, the same way it works where like, if you can abandon, uh, jealousy and be, um, impressed with excellence and want to raise your own, thing to that excellence or watching the way people work that that certainly helps like for sure so you guys announced you're getting back together announced the tour you're officially then out on tour when you're out on tour were there some places that you were excited to kind of get back to that you were at once before or maybe some places that you've never been that you were kind of looking forward to getting to uh yeah well i'd say the first part more so um part of the you know even the routing of this tour being the first one back and stuff is like all right these are all slam dunk markets okay these are all places like we know we can go and their shows are good and we do great and like people will be excited to see us so there was no real like uh big swings i would say on these tours it was pretty safe in that regard um there's certainly places i was looking forward to going i mean one of the things I realized uh, being away for so long was, you know, and I had done, you know, Mercy Union tour there in 19 and, you know, made it there in 18 as well. But 
yeah, you know, been a couple years and COVID and all those things. And I realized I'd spent so much time in Europe, specifically Germany, that I had these uh, kind of sensory connections to the place. And like, you know, if it's like uh, a certain type of weather and I smell like fresh bread or if it's like kind of cool and gray, like 55 and I smell like a cigarette, I think I'm in Germany, you know, like I have these weird sensory connections to the place. And that does make me like obviously miss it. Like I have some kind of, you know, uh, feeling towards the place. And I definitely have the same for England all over the U.S., especially when I get out to the West Coast. I love California and the Bay Area. Um, those are some of my favorite places to go. But, uh, you know, what's interesting is touring at this age with my many like physical ailments now, I actually kind of had to reframe the sort of some of the way I look at tour and treat tour. I mean, tour for me wasn't like going to work back in the day. I mean, it was an actual escape from home. You know, it was like I would have gotten in a fucking van with anyone to do anything yeah. for many years of my life just to get out of my situation and be part of the thing. You know, it didn't matter in what way. And I could have slept in a van and I it, it, and it didn't make you know, two differences to me. But now, like, you know, you get to this age. I've been living in like houses with my family for like a long time. I have certain like roles and responsibilities and daily grinds that weren't in the cards before. I have these physical problems. And it's like, um, I think at a certain point, I had to take away the guilt from like not going out in a certain city or being like, yeah, I'm in Edinburgh. I love this place, but I've been to this venue before. I know there's fucking nothing around here. I know that I have to take an Uber to anything cool and I'm just not up for it. And I'm going to play a way better show if I go on the bus and sleep for 20 minutes. And well, like, that's kind of been like a reframing where I'm sort of pulling the adventure side of it out. Like this, like, ah, this is like where I find my good visceral experience. And turning it more into like, hey, like, what do you got to do to like straight up just do your job that night, you know? Well, so as you're saying, like, you kind of have evolved, you know, since back back in the early days of Gaslight. How often do you get to see your family while you're on the road? Um, you know, do you FaceTime them? Do they come with you for some shows on the road? How, how do you kind of balance that dad and, and, and husband life while also trying to trying to play shows every night? Yeah, I mean, it's hard. It's also kind of a new and evolving landscape in some ways, because even when I first started touring in, you know, the late 90s, um, you know, we weren't doing cell phones yet, man. Um, and if we were, they certainly didn't have like cameras and video messaging and stuff like that on it. Uh, so like when you went away, you you went away and it was like. You know, I remember the first time I went to Europe, I did a seven week van tour in 2001 when I was a kid. And I think I called home two, three times, you know, and you had to use these, you know, by the minute calling cards on pay phones that never worked and find Internet cafes that you're pushing euros into the machine to try to write yeah. emails home. And, you know, and there was this different landscape and you were kind of away and I would I would journal and I would take photos and I was so immersed in this experience, like this little like 
like a hobbit like on you know like on a, <laughs> on a mission and stuff and and now it's like you're kind of not gone you know in a lot of ways and you're literally like part of the daily grind while away and i think that takes a level of discipline and patience on both sides of the fence like at home and on the road to like manage that because you know as if there's anything that can give you a sense of rage, it's dealing with an uncontrollable situation from many thousands of miles away, you know, like sure. something you can't do anything about, but you have full knowledge about and the awareness that you could do something about it if you were just there. Um, yeah. So where that is like, you know, my wife sometimes has to swallow shit. And be like, all right, it's fucking 20 minutes before a show. Even though this is horrible for me right now, I'm going to just keep this one till tomorrow morning or something like that. You know, like that kind of yeah. discipline, which is hard, especially yeah. when you're dealing with it on your own and like, you know, starting to feel the feels. And then, you know, on the other side, it's like I have to be like, OK, this is happening at home. My afternoon, even though I'm tired and dealing with all sorts of things like you be patient, you know, you you sit there and like and and you have to communicate and be more of a part of it while away than you used to so it's kind of like an ever-growing thing but as far as like families coming out on the road i mean that's some very very large scale band kind of stuff like like for that to be comfortable and sustainable is when bands are like getting to the point that each member has their own bus with their own family on it and things like that, because otherwise you're breaking off of the group going with your crew for a couple of yep. days. All of a sudden, you know, the hardest thing for me is, you know, I wake up in the morning at six 30 when I'm home, you know, and I go to sleep, you know, somewhere around the time I'm playing a show when I go on tour. So if, if you hop home for a day, you know, the kids don't give a fuck. They no. don't care. They're going to wake you up regardless at the same exact time. They don't know what the last three weeks was or, you know, there's no way to explain it. So it's it's a balancing act for sure. And uh, something that, you know, we all have to consider when we're making plans now. Luckily for us and something that's um good way, I guess, to keep everyone on the same page is we all did the same thing and we all have kids now um, and we're all doing the thing. So so I guess that's like uh keeping you know when we're making plans when we're doing things like it's part of it and there's not one person who's like i don't know fuck kids like who cares like let's go do this um so so that's i guess that's a good thing that that we don't have uh like an outlier like that i hadn't even thought of that actually so speaking of you know coming back home off the road you had mentioned on your podcast the tune-up which is co-hosted by denny gallagher that there are certain challenges for performers that they face when they're on the road and then coming back home, the balance of the highs and the lows. Is that something that you just don't get used to? Um, well, I think what's interesting is like, I think I had become used to it and I became accustomed to it and I was unaware of it. And I maybe had the time and the space and the lifestyle to allow me like almost the grace periods to switch, um, you know, or the things were, uh, almost so similar. I didn't notice. Um, 
so it's either a combination of, of my lifestyle, but I mean, I really do. I think I really, at this point, I think there's a, you know, a real chemical physiological thing going on for musicians and performers. And I'd say this for athletes and things like that. Anybody building themselves up to do something with an absolute hundred uh, percent burst of energy, um, followed directly by the demand that you're a completely normal person. It's a strange ride to be on. And I think some people can handle it better than others. Maybe some people are more physiologically equipped for it. That, that I don't even know. And I'd be curious, but to think what we know about like serotonin and dopamine and the release and the pleasure sensors and the things that go on in the brain, the releases of chemicals every time, like, like for instance, myself, I get, you know, uh, painfully nervous before I play less than I used to when I was a kid. But, you know, when I think about it now, I've almost, I haven't counted, but I've almost assuredly played over a thousand shows in my life. And the idea that a thousand times I had like a basketball in the pit of my stomach, right? And I had to work through it through a series of warming up and anxiety and, you know, get out there. And back in the day, I used to work myself up to get on stage. Now I'm, you know, trying to go out there a little more calm. But, you know, and then and then I remember I would, you know, play a show and there was a period of time we'd end with the back seats and, you know, I'd play that song and I'd fucking just drill the end to oh, the point yeah. that, you know, when I walked out of the back, I would fucking shirt off, sit on the stairs for like 10 minutes, just breathing, sweaty as fuck before I could even like talk to someone, you know, I was just like in this state and I'd put myself in that state. And then often it's like, okay, well, now there's nothing to do for the next 22 hours or something like that. Like out of nowhere, go sleep on the bus. And how do people go do that? They drink or they use other things to settle themselves down and come down from that. And then rinse, repeat the next day. And the idea that that's not, you know, minimizing dopamine at a certain time, minimizing serotonin, like, like the, the, that it's not creating some level of chemical imbalance seems pretty reasonable to me. And, you know, I think I've always kind of had an idea that this was possible. And the older I get, you know, that's maybe where kids is a pretty stunning thing because you just start to see yourself through someone else's eyes and it gets a little more obvious, your shortcomings. Um, and, uh, you know, and I can see it now, just like when you come home and you unplug that wave, your brain and your subconscious starts doing some strange things to put yourself back on a, on any kind of wave. Yeah. Anything that makes you feel great for a minute or down or, you know, like, and you want that wave. And the thing that you're supposed to do at home, especially as a parent, is usually be dead fucking even. Yep. And that's kind of like, you know, what you're expected to do. And, you know, then that can create all sorts of spirals because you know what you're supposed to do. You know how you're supposed to act and you literally have, your brain not allowing you to act that way. And that can cause depression that causes guilt. And then I think people spiral out of control. And then, you know, you also give usually people with 
uh, a lot of time and a lot of insecurities and vulnerabilities, a lot of money and a leisure to their life that demands like it takes a certain type of person to come home on any level, even a professional. I know professionals who can't set their day up at home adequately without going to work. It's hard. You know, yeah. like like it's hard to motivate yourself. It's hard to schedule it, especially if you don't know how. So then there's that other thing where you go on tour where literally every day you wake up, there's a sheet of where you're supposed to be at what time. You know what I mean? This is when yeah. doors open, sound check, this time, this time, this time. Scheduled to the point where like all you have to do is make sure you're there. You didn't have to do any of that scheduling. And then at home... You got to be like a schedule manager. And if you don't know how to do that stuff, I don't, I'm not very good at that stuff. You know, like this is where my lack of training becomes really obvious, you know. And so I, I'm more and more like thinking there's something really legitimate to it. And I, I guess I want to speak about it more, not because I think there's like some cure or anything, but on the idea that there should maybe be some awareness and people going into it should understand like the possible pitfalls and things they could do to maybe minimize it as they go through. I mean, my role models growing up were people who uh, drank themselves to death, did drugs to get on stage. You know, like it wasn't about managing your body and drinking a smoothie. It was about doing cocaine, doing a great fucking gig, you know, then drinking your ass off till you pass out somewhere, you know, rock and roll. And that's like what I was raised with these that's the way it was, yeah. That, that that's what you're supposed to do. It was like the '70s Oakland Raiders out here, you know. And, oh yeah. <laughs> and uh, I mean, I, I I think the I think speaking about it allows people to maybe kind of acknowledge it and, yeah. and not pre- and not pretend that it doesn't exist and that it's that's and like that's normal. It's like if you could speak about it, people are now aware, and it's like okay, yes, this is a real thing, yeah. And, it's it's easier to maybe manage that. I agree. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you just need to at least pinpoint the problem first, right? Absolutely. So, Benny, I kind of wanted to get into um, the new Gaslight music. We're expecting an album from you, Brian, Alex, and Alex. Without getting giving too much away, sure. What what can we kind of expect? Um, I mean, it's uh, yeah. Well, the last thing I'm going to do is be the drummer who gives away insider secrets that's how you that's how you get out of the industry real fast um (laughs) of course yeah so but i i will say like the one thing almost in the same way of touring is like we're cognizant of our age who we are now as people and as a band and what we're trying to accomplish and you know um I think at the very least, I can confidently say you're just not going to get an old man rehashed version of an old Gaslight record. Like, it's still for people who are feeling really creative and really want to push boundaries and do something different and do something that we haven't done because that's the point, you know? And we're not the people that we were 15 years ago, and you got to recognize that and and play to your strengths, you know? Um it's like uh, asking LeBron James to shoot too many threes, you know. Yeah, well, I, I I I think it's safe to say that from sink or swim, you know, to fifty nine sounds, to slang, 
to handwritten to get hurt. They all had their own unique sound. And, and I think that that's kind of something that I've seen in you guys where it's, you haven't stayed the same. You've always challenged yourself to do something different. And, and I think speaking, hopefully not for all the fans, but most fans that I think we're excited to see what this new Gaslight record sounds like compared to the others, because it's always nice hearing something fresh and something different, different rather than the same thing. Cause if you went into American slang doing, okay, 59 sound was super successful. Yeah. If we just do that, you know, we'll be good. Whereas sure. you guys did something different. Yeah. I mean, I think that's one of the things where it, it was always a bonus for, for Gaslight in the fact that we were never very impressed with ourselves and, um, usually automatically insecure about everything we did. Mm -hmm. Uh, and, and I think that led to like just this natural, like push, you know, where it's like, all right, like we're not done. People kind of like this, but what's next? Like, are we going to be able to do anything better than this? Like, I don't know, you know? And, but if that bar is not there, then like, you know, that that's kind of the thing that makes it like so exciting, you know, is like setting this, this bar and then going into the process and just putting yourself fully into it and trying to get out on the other side. Um, you know, that's like the exciting part about doing all this and kind of where a lot of unknowns and that kind of beautiful chemistry stuff, you know, comes into play like this, these, all the variables and the timing and the, the taste of all these people in a room coming together the right way. You know, that's where all that, all that cool shit happens. So I'm excited to do it again. That's awesome. We're looking forward to that. Well, I don't want to let you go without asking you about the New York Yankees. Yeah, come uh, on. Know you're a big Yankees fan. Oh, yeah. Uh, got swept should, in the ALCS by the Astros. I have this computer moved around. My Yankees walls on the other side. Oh, I, I, I'll, I'll picture it in my head what it looks yeah. like. Um, I, I got my Jeter and Mariano stuff hanging on the wall behind. There you go. Behind the computer as well. But we know they got swept in the ALCS. It just didn't look good. Where do they go from here, in your opinion? Does it start with Cashman? Is it Boone? Um, is re-signing Judge a necessity? There's so many questions, and so many Yankee fans have all these opinions about how to get things fixed. Where do you stand on it? Well, I I mean, I think you you nailed it as like the big the biggest building block right off the bat is what's going to happen with Judge, um, and I think like everything this offseason needs to kind of be dictated off that. I mean, regardless of judge coming back or not coming back, uh, we can't out pitch the best teams in the AL, not even close. So, I mean, if that's not something that's being considered this off season, judge could hit 80 home runs next year and you're not going to win a world series. Yeah. So I, you know, I, I'm always, I guess I'm a, uh, I'm an optimist in the idea that Brian Cashman's been smart for a really long time and he's made percentage wise good moves and done good things for the Yankees. I wanted to, to throw up a little in my mouth every time this year I saw Josh Donaldson at bat thinking about Gary and Gio over there in Minnesota. My boys would have been so nice on this run, you know, like, like, Oh yeah. And you know, and I just see these small bad moves that kind of led up to that and got us back in the Chapman mix and things. But 
but what's the other option? And that's the thing uh, that dictates it. So I think Cashman stays for now. Boone, um, I think as usual, same way like Steve Nash just was. It's like <laughs> he's he's just he's the first one on the hot seat, obviously. Like if anything goes wrong next year, they've been talking about Boone. He's the easiest one to cut. Yankees fans wouldn't mind that much. The judge thing, now, I got to say, I flip-flopped a lot through the course of this year. I'm still flip-flopping. And when we started the season and he turned down the extension, the way he was talking about it, California boy. I'm like, look at this clean-cut California boy. Doesn't want to stay here. Let him go. Who needs the money? And then, you know, about three months later, I'm like, Yankees are out of their goddamn mind if they let this guy go. This is the, you know, the most exciting player, not only for the Yankees, but like in baseball and baseball is, as you know, like uh, severely lacking in, in things that can garner people's interest. Well, yes, network had their highest ratings this year. Exactly. So like the one time the Yankees like strike gold, with a guy who's just gigantic enough and has the name and the home runs enough to get interest from nominal baseball fans or non-baseball fans. That's where I'm torn now, because if you ask me from a true baseball decision, I'd say no, flat out. No, don't give that guy that much money. I see a rookie season and last season as the only dominant seasons of baseball. This guy has played. He's a good outfielder, not a great outfielder. Um, And and all these years in between were just littered with everything you expect out of a 6'7 slugger, which is, oh, they can't stay healthy. Two months where they're just striking out like fucking crazy and you think they're never going to get it together again. Like, you know, do I think all of those problems are solved now? And do I think they're going to look any better through his mid to late thirties. No, I do not. And with, with, with that $350 million they would and may pay him. Do you have any confidence that Cashman would take that money and spread it out and fill those holes? Cause I, I, I'm still not sure that he's able to do that. So if the answer to that is no, then you might as well give him that money. That's a good point. The only thing that would make me think otherwise is my boy the booty shaker. If we have some idea that we can give Juan Soto the extension and he's coming here, that is someone I would want more than Aaron Judge. You know what I mean? If you're giving $350 million to anyone, I'd prefer to give it to someone like Juan Soto. So if that's on the board, I would take Juan Soto. But that's a good point. Do I believe that you take that money Judge walks this offseason and you put together a team that is good enough to compete for the World Series, I'd say the answer is no. I would yeah. say the answer is no, which makes me think, what can we pull off here? Can we just do like two years, about $60 million a year? Will he take that? Because <laughs> that's kind of what I want to give him. You know, I, I, I was thinking that. That's kind of like the new age thing now. It's those, those shorter deals, but more money per season you saw Max Scherzer Max Scherzer do that Carlos Correa did that that's right um I I think at this point Judge is looking for years though I I think he wants to be locked in for a long time he'd be nuts not to like yeah I mean I still I've been watching Aaron Judge play baseball for what seven eight years now yeah it's been what he came up in 2016 yeah and 
every time that guy lays out in the outfield, I go, no, don't yep. do it. Yeah. Don't do it. I'm still afraid. Like, you know, LeBron James can bet on himself because, you know, his arms are the size of someone's thighs. He's, you know, he's a freak. And he's also shown durability throughout his career, whereas exactly. Judge hasn't. Yeah. So Judge is going to have to take years, which means the Yankees are going to have to give him years. So I feel like after a good, good few minutes of talking about it here, we're no farther along than where we started. No, Um, I mean, there's no simple answer when it comes to the Yankees and what they need to do. Let's put this question on the table right now. Okay, Judge says, I want 10 years, $375 million, and I come back to the Yankees. Are you taking it? I don't know. That's a lot. $37.5 for by the time he's age 40. That's a lot of money. And you know, and it'll probably I, progress. So it'll probably be about fifty million plus by yeah. by two thousand thirty one or to, whatever. To be honest, I would say no. I, I, would, I would say have no. to say no. All right, it's yeah. gonna be it's gonna be light at Yankee Stadium next year. <laughs> yeah, that's for sure. Well, are are you able to watch uh, Yankee games while you're on the road? Uh, you know what? I actually kick it old school on the road. I am a uh, subscriber to the MLB.com radio app. So you and listen to John and Susan? I do. And I love John and Susan. Like, if I can, like, be on the road and catch John and Susan in my ears, like, sleeping in a bus bunk, I feel like I'm fucking 13 years old in Somerville, New Jersey. And, and oh, yeah. In a comfortable household bed. Oh, um, yeah. Uh, it's a safe place for me. No, yeah. So I, I go radio when I'm on the road. Great choice. I, I love it. I love it. I love the – could listen to either – I'll take an inning like listening to the to the Rays broadcast and then an inning listening to the Brewers broadcast like it's, yeah. it's fun. I yeah. mean it's great especially like you when you're on the road and it's you know you're trying to keep up with everything. I think that's the best way to go. It's comforting. And at night the last thing I want to listen to is fucking guitar rock or something. More music, you know? yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, Benny, I appreciate you taking the time to to talk no with me today. Um, you know, fantastic and uh looking forward to uh hearing that new record sometime soon. Awesome. I hope this this quandary is solved soon. It's it's going to keep me up at night. 